I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading the book of 1 Timothy. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. First, let's start with an introduction to the book of 1 Timothy. Paul wrote this letter to Timothy probably somewhere between 62 and 66 AD. We are told in the postscript that Paul was in Laodicea at the time of the writing. Timothy was one of Paul's preacher boys. The postscript to 2 Timothy tells us that Timothy was the first bishop of the Church of the Ephesians. This letter gives pastoral instruction to Timothy for direction in his ministry. Timothy had a Greek father and a Hebrew mother, which made him Greek. However, after conversion, Paul took him through the Jewish proselyte rituals for the sake of their ministry to the Jews. Timothy was circumcised at that time. As we begin our reading in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we have the warning to watch out for those false teachers. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Well, Paul first met Timothy on his second missionary journey at Lystra in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. He then became a companion to Paul. Later, Timothy became a dependable messenger for Paul to the churches. Having discipled Timothy, Paul refers to him as my own son in the faith in verse 2. The trip into Macedonia, while leaving Timothy in Ephesus, is not documented in the book of Acts. It probably took place afterward, just as then Paul instructs Timothy to hold the doctrinal line when he says in verse 3 that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. There is some description of that doctrine against which Paul warns in verses 4 through 7, but not to the extent that we can get a clear view of exactly the error that was being taught. It would appear to be a doctrine associated with the teaching of the Gnostics of the first century. From these comments, here's what we may derive about this false doctrine that was being preached. First of all, it was based upon fables. That's the Greek word mythos. We get our word myths from it. It was based upon fables and not Scripture. A similar warning, by the way, is given in Titus chapter 1, verse 14, when it says not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Now, this causes us to suspect that it may have been Gnostic teaching about which Paul warned in Colossae, 
to the church in Colossae there, the Colossians. That makes sense inasmuch as the letters to the Colossians, Timothy and Titus, were written within three or so years of one another. Moreover, Paul's direct usage of the Greek word gnosis in uh, chapter 6, verse 20, lends strength to the notion that Timothy's biggest culprits were those who taught this Gnostic doctrine. The reference to genealogies causes one to suspect that it was a doctrine based largely upon an incorrect rendering of genealogical precedent while dismissing the clear teaching of the role of grace and faith in Christ for salvation. Paul's reference to purpose of the commandment in verse 5 indicates that it must have involved a mixture of the law of Moses overshadowing or exempting the role of grace and faith. Furthermore, his phrase in verse 7 when he says, "...desiring to be teachers of the law," That leads us to the same conclusion. However, we see there that the resultant doctrine was disjointed and inconsistent with either grace or law. Paul spoke similarly to Titus in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Based upon these comments, it seems that Paul is probably warning against the strain of Gnostic doctrine being taught. The gospel message was being abused by incompetent teachers. Paul sums it up in verses 6 and 7 when he says, "...from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm." As you must be aware, incompetent teachers thrive even today. Unfortunately, there are a lot of preachers today who just don't spend time studying God's Word and rightly dividing the Word of Truth. As a result, a lot of preaching today has insufficient scriptural basis. It was true in Paul's day, and it's still true today. Paul goes on to explain that these incompetent preachers even misunderstand the purpose of the law. Believers don't live by the law of Moses. It's there to condemn the law's sinful condition of man. It says so in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. That verse says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul makes a similar short declarative statement about the law of Moses in verse 8 in this passage when he says, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. These incompetent teachers miss that important lesson. And what is that lawful use of the law? condemnation of the wicked as seen in verses 9 and 10. In other words, the law of Moses is not to be taught as the goal of victorious Christian living. That only comes through leadership of the Holy Spirit. There are a host of misguided Christians today who believe that they are saved by grace but kept by adhering to the law of Moses. Ironically, these Christians have never faced the issue of their deliberate dismissal of commandment number 4, that's the one regarding Sabbath-keeping, Sabbath-day-keeping. It's a no-work day, by the way, absolutely no work on that day. It was never designed as a day of worship for the Jews. It was a no-work day. Look at my article entitled The Sabbath Day under the topic section of BibleTrack.org, or if you're looking at my written notes for today, there's a link there that takes you to that article. Verse 11 actually tags on to the end of verse 10. After Paul describes the actions of unregenerate wicked people, he throws in a catch-all phrase. And that phrase is, And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Verse 11 then expands upon the term sound doctrine when Paul says this, 
according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. There is a systematic approach to life in Christ taught by Paul and based upon salvation by grace. This system excludes law as a means of finding favor with God altogether. Paul fought for this doctrine of salvation by grace against those who sought to dilute it throughout his ministry because he believed this doctrine, and I quote, was committed to my trust. And then he talks about saving sinners in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern of those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, concerning the faith of suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul continues with his ministry resume in verse 12, crediting Jesus Christ for, and I quote, putting me into the ministry. That means it wasn't just a job choice for Paul, but a calling from Christ himself, a call despite the fact that he refers to his past as having included being a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Since he actually presided over the execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, one might even go one step further in indicting Paul's past. All of this was done ignorantly in the name of religion, as he points out in verse 13. Nonetheless, he is assured in verses 14 and 15 that Christ's grace was way sufficient to forgive his past, even though he categorizes himself as chief, the Greek word protos, meaning number one among sinners. Christ came to save sinners. Paul says that he was chief, number one, as a sinner, and after all, he did persecute Christians before his conversion, probably even sentenced some to death. And then there was Stephen, but Christ saved him anyway. That's a powerful message that can save someone like Paul. He encourages Timothy to stick to this saving message. So why was mercy extended to Paul for salvation? Well, we see in verse 16 that Paul regarded the mercy extended to him by God as an example of God's long-suffering to those who follow. If Jesus Christ could reach down and save the number one sinner, then he'll save anyone. Verse 17 speaks to his authority to do so because he is, and I quote Paul, the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. Paul then issues a charge to Timothy in verses 18 and 19, which includes a restatement of his previous ministry call, having been confirmed by prophecies regarding him at the time of his ordination, talking about Timothy's ordination. Note the two references to Timothy's ordination found in verse 18 here, and again in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Here's what 1 Timothy 1, 18 says again. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, Paul said, 
Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the eldership. It appears that Timothy had been ordained to the ministry in a setting accompanied by prophecies concerning his ministry as well as the laying on of hands by the body of elders present. That sounds like a formal ordination service. Well, here's the charge. Wage the good warfare. Isn't it interesting that Paul uses warfare terminology to define the ministry to which Timothy was called? Then Paul deals with a couple of fellows who blasphemed in the course of their ministering, Hymenaeus and Alexander. One of them gets mentioned again in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, when it says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Obviously, their wrongdoing was doctrinal, and Paul does to them what he had suggested to be done to the adulterer in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the decree in both instances was to deliver the offenders over to Satan. It's believed by most that this terminology involved the withdrawal of fellowship from the offenders by people of faith, meaning excommunication from the church. So what was their sin? Paul describes it as, after having faith and a good conscience, then concerning the faith of suffered shipwreck. They didn't hold the line on their teaching of sound doctrine. It's apparent that Paul took seriously the preaching of heretical doctrine. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul takes up the issue of praying for our leaders. Verse 1, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. In that first verse where Paul says, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, it's interesting that he uses three different words which might be used interchangeably, but they do each describe prayer from a little different perspective. The first word he uses there, translated as supplications, is the Greek word deasis, which means an entreaty based upon a presumed need. Then he uses the word prayers, that Greek word is prosuke, and that means to speak to or make a request of God. And then thirdly, he uses the word intercessions, which is translated from the Greek word entuxis, which means to speak to someone on behalf of someone else. Now, as you can see, all three Greek words address a little different aspect of one's prayers. Add to that the giving of thanks at the end of that admonition, and Paul has just defined spirit-led prayer life. These prayers, however, are specifically directed toward leadership. In other words, we pray for our leaders that we might lead peaceful lives, a subject Paul also addressed in Romans chapter 13, verses 1-7. through It is ironic that it was the very Roman government for whom Paul is praying here that just gave him fits. And according to tradition, Paul was executed by that Roman government after a subsequent incarceration. Why pray for such evil people? Well, first of all, he says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in verse 2. Furthermore, we see in verse 3, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. In short, it's just the right thing to do. Beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul points out that salvation's for everyone. Verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
Verse 4 is worth repeating here regarding salvation for all. It says, "...who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth." No matter what you may have thought, God does desire. That's the Greek word thelo, means to will, desire, or wish. God does will, desire, and wish to see everyone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, the fact that in God's foreknowledge, he knows the names of all the people who will reject Christ as Savior, that presents a doctrinal dilemma for some, but doesn't for me. It is what it is. Yes, he wants everyone to be saved, and yes, he knows who will accept and who will reject Jesus Christ as Savior. He's God. Of course he knows. He knows everything. Now, if you're still having a problem with that concept of foreknowledge and predestination, then go over and look at my notes on Romans chapter 9, where I just tell you everything I know about it. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, we find a powerful verse that says, "...for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus." Now, here's a question for you. Who alone stands between God and man to make intercession? Here's the answer. Only Jesus Christ our Lord. No substitutes allowed. We see the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us in verse 6, where he is seen as, Paul says, a ransom for all. The word here translated ransom is a Greek word that's only used once in the New Testament. That word is antilutron. It's defined as the means or instrument by which release or deliverance is made possible. And Paul makes it clear in verse 7 that it is this Christ is our mediator message that has been entrusted to him, which he preaches faithfully to the Gentiles in faith and truth. That's the Greek word aletheia. Though not a popular message back home or to Jewish leaders anywhere, Paul had to preach the truth. Then we read Paul talking about a matter of public testimony, beginning in chapter 2, verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that the women adore themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission." And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, after a little informational detour, it's back to the issue of prayer, which Paul began up in chapter 2, verse 1. In that verse, he dealt with the content of one's prayer. Now he continues this thought in verse 8 with the testimony aspect of prayer. He declares this, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Paul expresses his desire that Christian men be seen praying for the people in verses 1 and 2. Everywhere, he says. And that's not a figurative statement. Paul uses the Greek dative form of the noun tapos with the all-inclusive adjective all or pos in Greek. He is stressing the importance of men having a public testimony that characterizes them as men of prayer. He adds that their prayer should be without wrath and doubting. We know Paul is talking about a public display because of his continuation of verse 9 where he talks about the public testimony of women introducing it with in like manner also. Now, Paul discusses the public testimony of Christian women here. The problem is that political correctness in today's society rejects this God-given role of women. 
First of all, Paul says that women should dress themselves modestly. He itemizes a style of dress that's identified with loose women in his day. And by the way, don't get hung up on the specifics of the dress style here. Just know that there is similarly a style of dress which advertises the wrong aspect of women today also, one that flaunts all the wrong characteristics of a woman from a Christian perspective. This style should be avoided. Instead, the aspect of a Christian woman that should be accentuated is her service for the Lord. In verse 10, we see that. Then we have the stake in the heart of the modern-day women's movement. Paul says in verses 11 and 12 the following, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man but to be in silence. I don't feel liberty to apply this scripture outside of a church setting, but it seems clear that it is to be applied in that setting. What about women preachers? Well, it is what it is. It says what it says. The literal meaning and all implications here seem clearly stated by Paul. Within the church setting, men are charged with the taking of the lead. A similar statement is made regarding the participation of women in corporate worship in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Paul does venture outside the church setting here with verses 13 through 15 in validating a woman's role in marriage. The verb saved there comes from the Greek word sozo in verse 15. It doesn't necessarily refer to spiritual salvation, and it does not mean that here in this passage. His comments here are meant to suggest the following idea. Here it is. For godly women, their fulfillment in life is met as they raise good, strong, principled children. It's sad that we live in a society today where homemakers are discounted and demeaned. Bible-believing Christians place a badge of honor on all women who choose to put their families in the spotlight, just as Paul encourages here. As we come to the next chapter, chapter 3, we have the qualifications of elders, bishops, pastors, and shepherds, beginning with chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. In the New Testament, four words describe a single office within the local church. Those words are elder, bishop, pastor, and shepherd. Elder comes from a Greek word presbyteros, which was the term used to describe those who governed a city or province in addition to actually being the general term for an older person. Bishop, on the other hand, comes from the Greek word episkopos. That means superintendent or overseer. This word was commonly used to describe a person who was in charge of a particular job, well, like a building contractor. Now, pastor or shepherd, those are translations of a third Greek word, poimen. This word is only translated pastor in one verse in the New Testament, and that's Ephesians chapter 4.11. Every other occurrence is translated shepherd. When Paul addresses the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 to 38, he uses all three of these Greek words to describe the same office. 
So there is no scriptural differentiation between an elder or bishop or a pastor or a shepherd. They are all the same office with each word highlighting perhaps a different aspect of that responsibility. Men who are called by God to this office serve as pastors or shepherds of a flock, a local assembly. In this passage, Paul gives the scriptural qualifications for those who feel that God has called them to this office. If you want to know more about that, there's an informational box to the right of the window for today's reading, or you can look at the article under the topic section of BibleTrack.org entitled Pastors, Bishops, and Elders. Incidentally, you'll find a detailed description of the qualifications for those elders in that article that I just referenced. That brings us to the deacons in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8-13. through 13. Verse 8, Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, and let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things, let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So here Paul gives the uh, scriptural qualifications for those who want to serve as deacons. While it's not indicated per se, we assume that the seven men who were appointed by the apostles in Acts chapter 6 to assist them in the ministry of the distribution to the needy within the church we assume that they were the first deacons. That being the case, the model seems to be that when there is more to be done in the ministry than there are elders to do it, the church subsidizes the effort with deacons. Since elders and bishops and pastors are called by God to the gospel ministry, it would be inappropriate to appoint someone to be an elder who was not called to that particular office by God. Therefore, deacons are the local church solution to this problem. Now, if you're looking at the written notes of BibleTrack.org, you'll see that there's a detailed uh, listing of those qualifications that were just listed and what each word means. We're going to skip through that. If you're interested, look at the written notes of BibleTrack.org for those details. Paul concludes in verse 13 by saying, For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. The Greek word for standing there is bathmos, which means social standing. In other words, the office of a deacon puts one out in front, out in front of the community and the church for scrutiny. It's an example position for other people. Then we find the mystery of godliness beginning in chapter 3, verse 14. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Paul expresses here his desire to visit with Timothy, but until then, this letter will have to suffice, serving as a document of detailed instruction on how one's ministry should be conducted. He adds gravity to the mission when he highlights the target in verse 15 and says, I quote, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Here Paul means to convey the vital importance of the pastoral ministry. If any pastor ever thinks that what he does isn't really that important, then read verses 14 through 16 once again. So in Paul's ministry, what's all the flack about with the Jews? Well, here it is in a nutshell, the mystery of godliness. 
A mystery is that which cannot be known by the natural, in other words, not spirit-led mind. Usually it's in the context of having been previously hidden. This indeed is the concept rejected by the Jews. Let's look closely at this mystery in verse 16. It says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Now let's break down that verse, verse 16. When God was manifested in the flesh, it was in the person of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, was refuted by the Jews. And then Jesus, we see here in verse 16, was justified in the Spirit, also refuted by the Jews. Jesus was seen of angels, oh, and by the way, also refuted by the Jews. Jesus was preached among the Gentiles, and that would be to the dismay of the Jews. Jesus was believed on in the world, again to the dismay of the Jews. And Jesus finally was received up in glory, definitely refuted by the Jews. And that's why it's called by Paul a mystery, the Greek word mysterion. The natural mind rejects the supernatural purpose and existence of Jesus Christ, and that goes double for the Jews of Paul's day. Then in chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, we find a fight against asceticism. Verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. It's generally believed that first-century Gnostics were ascetic in their approach to lifestyle issues expressed most noticeably in their sexual and dietary practices. Whether these comments are directed specifically toward the Gnostics or not, there are some people then and now who think they aren't doing enough sacrificing for Christ. In Paul's day, as well as ours, there were those who adopted strange practices that they proclaimed should be practiced by everyone with a commitment to Christ. Basically, however, it amounts to false doctrine, not pleasing before God. It adds an extra scriptural layer of obedience to following Christ that is not appropriate, and therefore it becomes an evil addition to one's faith, and Paul treats it as evil in this passage. These ascetic measures do sound familiar, don't they? Paul names two practices of these false teachers that help us identify their error in verse 3, and those are abstinence from marriage being one and vegetarianism the second one. Now, don't misunderstand. One may practice either of these and not be a false teacher. However, we see in this passage that they taught these as the way to find favor with God. Now, that's what makes it heresy, and heresy it is. Not that they practiced it, but that they said it was the way to please God. That's what made it heresy. So look at the unflattering remarks that Paul makes regarding their doctrine and those who teach it in verses 1 and 2. He says, first of all, it's a departure from the faith, and also it's the product of deceiving spirits. And then thirdly, it's the product of the doctrines of demons. And then they are hypocritical liars who teach those things. And finally, their consciences are seared, a seared conscience disregards Holy Spirit leadership and forsakes sound principles. 
In verses 4 and 5, he confirms that these two heretical practices are not to be regarded as scriptural mandates. So why is Paul so hard on practices that seem quite innocent, really? Well, consider this. When people add extra-scriptural conditions to salvation or life in Christ, then they destroy the doctrine of salvation by grace. So, while Paul names just two of the characteristic false teachings of these first-century teachers of asceticism, just understand this, that any teaching which adds to the conditions for salvation or favor with God are equally as evil. Then Paul talks about a good servant of Jesus Christ in chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come." This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine." Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. In verse 6, Paul encourages Timothy to stick with his training teach those things which he knows to be sound doctrine. In doing so, he's a good minister of Jesus Christ, as Paul describes it. The Greek word for minister there is diakonos, and it's frequently used in the context of non-pastoral service. Based upon context, it's obvious that Paul intends his comment here to be reflective of the worthy service of a pastoral ministry in holding the doctrinal line. Paul encourages Timothy to stay focused. Don't get distracted with meaningless rituals and teachings, which he describes as profane, and old wives' fables, he describes them. The word fables there is the Greek word mythos. We get our word myths from that. In other words, things made up without any basis or substance. In other words, people tend to add spurious accessories to doctrinal truths. Well, don't be fooled by those things. Paul figuratively uses the word for physical exercise in verse 7 when he encourages Timothy to exercise himself spiritually. When compared to a statement of verse 8, it says, For bodily exercise profits a little. It's obvious that Paul's talking about the aggressive sharpening of Timothy's ministry skills, just as one physically exercises in pursuit of athletic excellence. He further comments that the former has eternal rewards. Paul emphasizes in verse 9 that his preceding comments are to be universally accepted as sound doctrine. Paul himself has labored and suffered for this doctrine, he says in verse 10. Notice his comment in verse 10 when he says, "...the Savior of all men." That is so in that Jesus paid, as he says, a ransom for all. That's in chapter 2, verse 6. Although only believers are born again, the concept captured in Paul's Additional stipulations here say especially of those 
who believe. Beginning in verse 11, Paul challenges Timothy to command and teach these things, but in so doing, act like an adult. That may seem like a strange admonition, but obviously Timothy was a young man. Paul's telling him that if he displays the immaturity of youth, he'll have a pretty difficult time ministering, especially to more mature believers. Hang up the skateboard, Timothy. You're in a man's world now. Paul comprehensively itemizes aspects of living in which Timothy should make certain he shines as an example in verse 12. He says, Timothy, I want you to shine when it comes to word, in other words, the maturity and the knowledge of God's word, in conduct, meaning his lifestyle and behavior, in love, being toward God and to others, in spirit, a manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And in faith, a dependence on God, and purity, a blameless lifestyle as prescribed in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. All of those things are attributes that Paul says, Timothy, you need to shine in these. He gives him a successful ministry key in verse 13 when he says, Give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. No question. Paul's placed some high expectations on Timothy here. He reminds him of his ordination to the ministry in verse 14. Also, he did that up in chapter 1, verse 18. Paul concludes the remarks that he began up in verse 1 regarding those teaching false doctrine by emphasizing that correct doctrine saves The implications are clear. False doctrine causes people to miss the message of salvation. And Paul, again, encourages Timothy to hold that doctrinal line. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, we have various instructions that Timothy's to relay to the church there. Verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone, trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, and these things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man, well reported for good works, if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. And do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. 
Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So here we have a lot of admonitions in this chapter. First of all, in the first two verses, treat older believers with respect. Uh, the word elders, presbyteros, which I commented earlier, is used for the uh, position in a church. Here it's used in another context, and it's talking about older people. And then take care of widows in verse 3, those who don't have families to do so. Uh, families should take care of their own including widows, we see in verses 4 through 8. Then we have some guidelines in verses 9 through 16 on the really a widow club uh, with no governmental social programs. Care for the needy was a constant issue. Of course, a woman's retirement program was her children. However, what if there were no children to provide? Paul obviously is referring to a local group of destitute older, over 60 women here who necessarily needed provisions, and they will become the responsibility of the local assembly. Women of marrying age were not to be included in that number. It would appear that these older women had their own set of ministry responsibilities there in the church. Verse 12 indicates a level of commitment embraced by these women. Younger women might seek provisions without the commitment and be subject to judgment. The Greek word for condemnation in the New King James Version is krema. It's often translated judgment. These younger women of marrying age should marry instead of joining this group of really widows. Apparently, some bad experiences witnessed by Paul are recounted here in verse 13. And then in verses 17 through 19, he tells us how to properly relate to the elders, bishops, pastors, and shepherds. Context here definitely relates to the position of elder, not simply older men. Paul addresses the issue of financial compensation for elders in verses 17 and 18, calling upon an Old Testament reference here, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. That's a point of law that required as much food as the ox could eat while he was plowing. Paul also quotes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, the same reference regarding his personal financial support. In verse 19, he's told to use extreme caution in the rebuking of another elder. Paul warns Timothy about that, making certain to have two or three witnesses present at the time. And then in verses 20 and 21, Paul emphasizes that all sin needs to be exposed as sin without any partiality whatsoever. Verse 22 warns, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. What does that mean? Well, we don't know for certain. It could be for ordination of elders or deacons. Some have suggested that it dealt with the laying on of hands of reconciliation on repentant or fallen elders when they're received back into the communion of the church. As I said, we don't know for certain what is intended there. Verse 23 contains a little home remedy, the medicinal value of a little wine. And then verses 24 and 25 tell us that sooner or later, 
people will see who we really are. How slaves are to act. That's the subject of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Slavery during the first century was a legal reality, and it had been for centuries in the Roman Empire and the empires that preceded it. These slaves under Roman rule were not entire races, but rather certain people from within each race who were in bondage as slaves. So how might one end up being a slave during that era? Well, derived from extra-biblical historical documents, here are a few ways. First of all, if you were born to a slave, you were born a slave, and remained such unless your master gave you your freedom. Secondly, promiscuity was rampant during that era. It was common that unwanted babies would be left out on the side of the road to suffer death by exposure, especially girls. Slave traders would then harvest these unwanted babies and then hire someone to raise them until they could be sold as slaves. Even though most of these babies were unwanted females, they would be raised to become productive in supplying male and female slaves to their owners. It's also true that, thirdly, a debtor could lose his freedom and be forced into slavery as a result of that. And then sometimes, lastly, slaves were formerly prisoners of war. So Paul deals uh, briefly with the proper attitude of slaves toward their owners here in this passage. He had no power to change laws governing slavery. Some would question why Paul didn't condemn slavery altogether in this and other passages. Well, keep in mind two issues at hand. First, when raised as a slave from birth, Roman society would have been economically intolerant of one who had acquired his freedom in most circumstances. This was the lifestyle to which they were accustomed. The security of a benevolent slave owner was preferred by many over freedom. Second of all, Paul's ministry was not one of government reform. His was a ministry of reconciliation to God. Here was a man writing to people from prison, after all. He was enduring his own version of false imprisonment. So understand that these verses represent Paul's instructions to believers who were slaves and to slave owners. Now, I've written more on that. It's over in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, regarding the slave-master relationship. In that passage, Paul also explains the proper attitude a slave owner should have with regard to his slaves. And then uh, in chapter 6, beginning with verse 3, Paul tells Timothy not to expect to get rich preaching. Verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who oppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Even though these words immediately follow Paul's brief encouragement to slaves, he seems to be referencing the entire body of his teaching with these comments. 
This would seem to be the capper on this whole letter of doctrinal mandates. Notice the authority Paul places upon these writings of this epistle in verse 3 by referring to them, first of all, as wholesome words, and then he refers to them as the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he refers to them as the doctrine which accords with godliness. Now, those who dispute Paul's teachings are addressed specifically in verses 4 and 5. Here's the deal. Paul's words to Timothy here and elsewhere in the New Testament have the absolute authority of inspired Scripture from God equal in strength with the words of Jesus and the entirety of the Old Testament. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, when he says there, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, understand that these verses, verses 4 and 5, dispel the notion that doctrine contrary to the teachings of Paul may be considered in any way acceptable, because it's not. Not only is the contrary doctrine to be rejected, but those teaching that doctrine are to be rejected as those with evil intent. Paul is directing this passage to Timothy, warning him of these who would use the ministry for financial gain. These false teachers modify their message so as to extract money from their followers, and that's wrong, wrong, wrong. Paul then makes some general comments that should serve as a warning to anyone who puts the accumulation of wealth as a higher priority than serving God. Paul has already acknowledged that it's appropriate to receive compensation for the ministry. He did so back in chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. However, he does find unacceptable those who are in the ministry for the money in this passage. He addresses those who do not accept that premise of ministry in verse 9 when he says this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now, if we stick to the context here, Paul is obviously talking about one's motivation for ministering. The gospel of Jesus Christ should not be preached strictly for financial compensation. While many have taken this as a general exhortation regarding greed for money, it really seems to be a money versus sincere ministry issue in verses 9 and 10 as well. Those who ministered for the money, it says, strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Timothy is then encouraged to stick to the correct motivation for ministering in verses 11 and 12. And finally, Timothy is encouraged to fight the good fight of faith, verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. 
O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Well, here Paul encourages Timothy to minister with the correct motivation in verse 11. So here's Timothy's pep talk from Paul. Timothy is to view his ministry as a fight. Satan certainly does. He warns Timothy not to fall into the trap practiced by so many of modifying the clear presentation of the gospel in verse 14. As a matter of fact, that seems to be the overriding theme of this letter written to Timothy. Stay firm with sound doctrine. In his parting words, Paul strengthens his encouragement for Timothy to stick to his solid ministry resolve. Paul concludes this letter to Timothy with some additional words about the proper message he should convey to those of financial means. He does so in verses 17 through 19. Those people should be encouraged to use their wealth for God's glory and that they should share with others. Finally, Timothy is once again told to resist teachings that contradict sound doctrine. Profane in this passage comes from the Greek word babelos. It literally refers to worldly or godless words. In other words, when we're talking about the supernatural nature of God, we do an injustice to the clear teaching of Scripture when we minimize God's power and authority with concepts that are anything less than descriptive of God in that supernatural context. These vain babblings come from the compound Greek word kenophania. These are empty sounds, sophisticated-sounding words that have no real meaning. The Greek word translated knowledge in the New King James Version is gnosis. It's the word for knowledge, but here holds the connotation of being the doctrine of knowledge taught by those in the first century that we now know as Gnostics. Their sinister teachings were mostly error built upon a little bit of truth. Paul deals with these people in his opening words of this letter in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1-11. through Paul also warned of this Gnostic teaching over in the book of Colossians. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.